the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live inside the Beltway. The interview with Hugh Hewitt today is with Andrew Sullivan, who has a brand new book out, Out on a Limb, Selected Writings, 1989 to 2021. Andrew is back after a hiatus of 15 years, and I'm very glad. Andrew, welcome back. Hi. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'll try to be a little bit more uh, polite than last time. Andrew, that was on me. I went back and reread it, and I owe you an apology. I asked a provocative question at the beginning of that interview, are you a Christian? And I did so because of my, my MO in radio is to reintroduce people to audiences. I ought to have begun with, you are a serious Christian. Would you please explain your beliefs? And you quite rightly took offense to that. So that was on me. Let's do this differently this time. Here's my introduction. You are easily the most consequential public in, uh, intellectual of the last 30 years. Hitch was a close second, but you actually are the necessary, though not sufficient, guy who got same-sex marriage constitutionalized in the United States. And I don't think I'm shining you on. I think that's true. You also have written about on almost every subject. I don't know why Hitch was a regular guest for six, seven years on this show. I even have a website devoted to Hugh and Hitch. I've got to get you back on the show more often. But tell me about your arc over those 30 years. How would you describe your journey over the last three decades intellectually? Well, I think uh, in some ways I'm, I'm quite similar as I was when I started. I think you could say I'm a, a small C conservative um, with, uh, with libertarian instincts uh, who, uh, who, who learned and grew, I hope, over those years. It was it was an arc that obviously, with respect to the issue you, you 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 say, was an incredibly affirmative thing for me as an immigrant to America. It was it showed to me at least that I think we conducted our debate quite civilly at the time. Certainly compared with today, uh, we hashed out the arguments. I, I put an anthology with Bill Bennett in it and Maggie Gallagher, and we had a good. Debate and America changed its mind. I would have preferred it not to have been quite so court-driven, but it. But that's what happens in America, uh, and that gives me enormous faith in this country. Not the only thing, but one of the things I've lived its ability to make things better, in my opinion, for people. Uh, and then, of course, the other big arc is foreign policy, where I did hit a wall with the Iraq War, and and try to rethink my own view of America's role in the world uh, and, and attempted to, to, to find a different kind of foreign policy approach 
that did not make the mistakes of attempting to turn Iraq or Afghanistan into democracies and did not act with, with not enough knowledge to make the kind of huge decisions that we made at the time. But I did it in good faith. I supported the war in good faith and I switched in good faith. Uh, and, and, but I am much more attuned to uh, less interventionist foreign policy than I was, much more. I'm, I'm happy we're out of Afghanistan uh, because I think it was hurting us. I think it was overextending, overreaching. I think, it, I think the Iraq war was terrible for America's image in the world and set us back. So that's the arc, really. But essentially, I'm still the small C conservative that believes in a liberal democracy. And I, I don't like the left in its, in, its, in its authoritarian and somewhat totalitarian form that it's now in. And I don't like uh, some of the anti-democratic issues and the cult uh, uh, aspect of, of Trump. If we are successful, if I can stick to my outline from out on a limb, we will end up talking and the interview talking about Maggie Thatcher, uh, because I, I yeah. loved your essay on Maggie Thatcher. It was like my 53rd birthday that it came out and I loved it. And I'll come back to that. But I began this week's long interviews with your former mentor and my former teacher. You learned a lot more than I did. Harvey Mansfield from Harvey Mansfield. Yeah. And, and Harvey is pretty pessimistic about where we are right now. Now, he's a wise man at 89. He's back in the classroom teaching Gov 106 A and B, trying to get knuckleheads like me to understand and brilliant intellects like you to dive deeper. What do you think of his pessimism? Does, does Harvey Mansfield pessimism make you in turn pessimistic? Well, if, if Harvey says something, I always take it seriously and think about it. Although he may have said it in such a way that you haven't detected the irony. That's always a possibility. But nonetheless, um, look, in terms of liberal society, and especially if you're in a university, this is a terrible time. I don't think we've ever seen this amount of attempt to squelch a diversity of opinion. And to, to do that by bringing up and using, uh, they would use the word weaponize, but I wouldn't say it, but using race as a way to mobilize people is terribly dangerous, uh, especially in the way that it's, it's been practiced, uh, and deeply illiberal. And, and you're seeing things like due process, freedom of speech, freedom of association, uh, these core liberal values being trashed by this new orthodoxy. And it doesn't seem as if there are antibodies within these elite institutions to fight back. Maybe there are, I see some signs of hope, but the universities are now in the grip of these people. And, and not only are they in the grip of them in the professoriate, it's mainly the administrative aspect of these universities that are imposing what is essentially a terrible neo-Marxist approach to what should be the absolute core of a liberal society, the liberal university. Well, this is what he put his finger on, one of two things, is that he no longer has the clout that he has. He put that down to being age. I actually put it down to faculty. I've been teaching for 25 years constitutional law, and it's becoming impossible to find in the American Legal Academy serious originalists who are not now part of the Federalist Society shadow university, but not in the university. Andrew, let me go back to, to Hitch, since Hitchens is quite a lot in your book. He flourished in the American media. People loved him because he was like you, a Brit originally. He was like you, funny and acerbic. Uh, and he was celebrated. That's not the media of today. The media of today is, I think, 
a fortress on the left that is driving out uh, the unorthodox views of, of freedom people. Do you agree with my assessment? Well, I've lived it, Hugh. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 for, for reasons that uh, were entirely ideological, entirely, they didn't really raise any other issues. I was asked to leave New York Magazine after four years there um, because I just wouldn't go along in that summer with some. I wanted to write a piece critical of the riots and the violence. And that became hugely problematic for someone to do. And so it became quite clear that we were not going to come to an agreement. And so Substack came up, and that's where we're all going, all the exiles in a way. Uh, Hitch, you know, Hitch was always a difficult person to assimilate into any institution, as it were. And I think he would have been, I mean, the reason I think we miss him so much is because this, this is the time when he would have been the most skewering of these people with, from the most erudite and often funny position that he held, and, and Trump, too. He was absolutely perfect to mock Trump, which is what he would have done, I think, in some way. I, I mean, I don't think I, I don't want to ascribe any political opinions to him that he didn't hold. But I, I miss him at this point, especially because he had that unbelievably querulous, skeptical, ballsy spirit. You know, the thing about writers is that we need to start out with a clean slate. We need to be able to get things wrong. We need to be able to express Difficult opinions, on the edge opinions, because that's who we are. You tell us at the get-go, you can't say this, you can't use that word, you can't do that. And we're stymied. And that's why, you know, so much of the good writing right now is not happening in the mainstream media. It's happening outside of it. It's over at uh, Substack. I, I want to plug not only your book, Out on a Limb, which will be a bestseller. People will get it and they will revel in it uh, from 1989 to the present. But I want people to subscribe to your Substack. And for the benefit of people who do not know, Barry Weiss is there. Many people have gone to Substack. Would you describe what it allows you to do, Andrew, and how many people are now subscribing? I've always said, I wrote in blog 15 years ago, the byline is the brand now. It's not the New York Times. It's the byline in the New York Times. It's not Andrew Sullivan at New York Magazine. It's going to be Andrew Sullivan at Substack. That's what people will pay for. Yeah, I was lucky in as much as I'd already done that for like 15 years on the dish, uh, the, the blog, the daily blog. So this was a kind of weekly version of that. So I had a big audience already built in. I now have about over 100,000 people subscribing to getting the email every week. Uh, not all of them are paying right now, but a good 18, 19 percent are. I mean, 19,000 are, which, which is a plenty for a writer to earn a living. Oh, it's remarkable. It's a great innovation. I salute the people who began it. I want to go to your early writings about Benedict and then your later writings about Francis. We're both Catholics. Uh, I think you may have evolved on Benedict. I want to find out. You and I agree on one major thing. I mean, one thing on which we have complete agreement. No number of encyclicals in the history of the church did more for the church than Francis laying his hands on the head of the of the deeply disfigured man with tumors. That's probably the most powerful witness I've ever seen of Catholic faith in my 65 years. But you were hard on Benedict. And I think Benedict is probably the greatest theologian of the last half century. He'll be a doctor of the church someday. And I think his act of humility in retiring when he became infirm is a remarkable testament to his genuine soul. Well, just as John Paul's suffering was a, a testament to his courage, what do you think of Benedict now from this remove? 
Well, Hugh, I wish I had included a big essay about uh, then Joseph Ratzinger's theology I wrote in 1988, actually. Oh, before the uh, book started. Which, okay. <laughs> Uh, which which was slightly before this began. This, and because my editors were like, that is such a, how are we going to start with a 4,000 word piece on Benedict <laughs> theology? And, you know, I took the point. I mean, you know. Uh, Fair I, point. <laughs> but let me say this about him. There, there's certainly, it's certainly hard to find a pope with as fine a mind as this man. And I think that the encyclical Deus Caritas Est is, is, is one of the most moving and beautiful encyclicals I've ever encountered. Uh, and I understand the need to establish authoritative truth from above. And I believe that he understood that beauty is important in religion and in spirituality. And in all of that, I commend him. He was also, oh, as we remember, a huge story. architect of the Second Vatican Council. I mean, he was absolutely central to it. What I feel, felt was that there was another aspect to Catholicism, that's a horizontal thing, uh, where the, the faith of the people and the experience of the people, the moral intuitions, the sense of spedalium, exists and there's a there's an interaction between the vertical and the horizontal and i think he missed the horizontal and i think francis has somewhat missed the vertical so that's what i would say but i certainly that's beautiful that's actually perfect uh because when you say francis missed the vertical would you ex expound on that because i think rod Dreher from the orthodox side and and ross douthat from the catholic side would absolutely agree with you well, yes, except I don't mean it as definitively as they mean it. And I think even Ross, I actually spoke with him yesterday about this, uh, has mellowed a little bit on Francis because, because it's clear that what Francis was sending signals about the openness of the church to new people, to people who have been scarred, to people who have been hurt by the church. And that's a very important thing to do. And also open up the church to, to the core of what it's supposed to be, which is not fighting about doctrine, but about living as Christ would want us to live. And that is sometimes we got we miss that in the establishment of orthodoxy. And I also think Benedict was was a little too fanatical about his persecution and obsession with orthodoxy. It might have been his background in the in the uh, uh, the congregation for the doctrine of the propagation of the faith. But uh, yes, you can argue that Francis has obscured that divine authority, that he has allowed the church to breathe sort of in the absence of it. And he regards himself and introduced himself as the Bishop of Rome, not, not the Pope. Well, let me so uh, put before you two propositions about, and I'm going to call them Ratzinger and Bergoglio here, not by their papal names, because I, I trace both of these flaws to that. Ratzinger, having been present at the creation of Vatican II and thus been complicit in whatever its excess was, and I don't want to get into that, that's a large year's discussion, felt more obliged to be doctrinally pure than someone who wasn't present at the original era. And Bergoglio, for the reasons that you outline in a very adept essay on him, he was no hero during the Argentinian persecution. So he is going to overcorrect against authority 
Have you ever been to the Metropolitan Cathedral in, in Buenos Aires, Andrew Sullivan? I have not. No, I have not. By the way, I think that's a perfect way of putting it. What you, I mean, since you can't bear me on that, that was perfect. I didn't well, think of that psychologically by, for the two men. Overcorrection. Well, that's their reflex. It, when you go to Buenos Aires next and you visit the Metropolitan Cathedral where Bergoglio was the, the bishop of Buenos Aires for so long, they have the, uh, the Mount Vernon of Argentina in there. Their first president is buried inside the cathedral. So there's no separation of church and state in Argentina. So he really does not like America. I have to believe in my heart that El Norte is to him what many South Americans believe about North America. And therefore, the revival that was underway in, in America has been stultified by his uh, Episcopal appointment since he became the Pope. I really think we've gone backwards in the American church, although in some respect, I mean, McCarrick and, and uh, Whirl are villains. They're villains. And you know that, and I know. McCarrick is the worst villain. Whirl is a cover-up artist. And he took his advice from them until McCarrick was uh, uh, revealed to be a villain. Do you think that may have hurt his papacy? I, I can't speak to who he who from whom, whom he took advice. Uh, I don't know. I, I just don't know privately. I, I, think, I think the Pope has a lot of people on dial and talks to a lot of people and is involved, and many of them unofficial channels as well. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I, I get the sense he had an understanding that McCarrick was problematic from the get-go, obviously. Um, but no, I don't think that he's ruining the church or threatening a schism or anything like that. I do think he is he's attempting to guide it in a more pastoral and pragmatic and welcoming uh, manner. I think that's what that's what it is. And, and so I don't see the stakes as quite so high. I honestly do not think that the question of, for example, uh, the remarrying of a divorced, let's say, woman who had a terrible first marriage and has found someone who loves her uh, I, I think that's I, I finding rejecting her from communion does not seem to me a hill I would die on myself. And I don't think it's one our Lord would would die on personally. But I, I you know, Ro it. Ross, this, I haven't thought it through. I'm not going to have a position on that. I yeah. did raise with a, with a very serious Protestant theologian this week. What would happen if the epistles hadn't been read and we were just a church based on the Gospels and it would be quite a different church if the theological construct provided by Paul was not present in the Gospels. And I'm becoming more of a minimalist Catholic myself as the years go by on. I want to go to Montana now, because when I was a young undergraduate working for John Gibbon and Bill Crystal and Harvey Mansfield, I did my senior thesis on Montana. You did yours on Oakshot. Montaigne's best line is the sign of wisdom. The greatest sign of wisdom is a constant cheerfulness. Do you consider yourself constantly cheerful, Andrew, even with all the illness in your life and even with all the controversy? Are you cheerful? A lot of the time. A lot of the time. I do. I don't. I don't. I when people people only see me from this combative place in the online world. Uh, no, I'm really quite chill <laughs> offline and I have. I have great friends who have nothing whatsoever to do with politics or, or journalism. So, uh, and I have this lovely community here in Provincetown where I live in the summer. I am a lucky man. I'm very much aware of that. Uh, incredibly lucky. And uh, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm happy in that respect. Uh, now I have my moods, we all do. And I, I've, I've, I've found 
myself depressed about the country and the world recently, which has been, you know, difficult. Uh, I think we're all going through that. Um, but in general, I put one foot in front of the other and get on with it. And that's that's sort of uh, reminds let, me of let, a, let me test that. There's a shadow of sorrow in your <laughs> writing that comes from yourself suffering from and surviving AIDS. It's it's quite here. And having lived through the plague, I lost friends, one roommate to AIDS because uh, I graduated in 78 just as the plague arrived. And I know what it was like in those years, but most of America doesn't. They did get traumatized by 9-11. So people of my age have sort of two traumas, a domestic trauma, which is the AIDS crisis, and then an international trauma, which is 9-11. And it's going to affect people. But you, more than anyone, took the brunt of both those because you personally had to fight the former and you've written through the latter. Do you think that is just going to have a long-term sort of PTS impact on the entire country and the West, those twin crises? Well, I think AIDS was remarkably, in some ways, for most people, invisible to them. It wasn't a direct, visceral experience. What it did, I think, which, hap- which was collectively, and I think this was underrated in its impact, was because so many died and because so many of them had been secretive about their lives, it kind of outed a whole generation of people so that it became impossible to think about homosexuals as a kind of weird, distant, forbidden, unknown group of people. They, they were suddenly, you know, they were suddenly your, your, your sons and, and, uh, or, your, or your father or your roommate, as you, as you discovered. So it humanized us. And I think once we became more human to people and more visible, then the marriage movement had that extraordinary psychological power to move forward. And some of us, I will totally admit, it was watching uh, friends of mine torn apart from their spouses on their very deathbeds and forbidden to go to funerals, thrown out of their apartments that made my own conviction about marriage so, so, so passionate. So AIDS both changed the visibility and the, the, the very nature of what homosexuality was for most people. Uh, it went from, oh, these people have sex to these people are dying and taking care of them, each other. Uh, and secondly, it had this political effect. But trauma, yes, I, I will always admit that I am a child of the plague. I, I, that was where I, how I grew up as a gay man, and that was what I went through. I lost, uh, I lost uh, five, five very good friends, three of whom I dated, one of whom was my best friend. And, and, we, and I thought I was headed for the same fate. You don't, you don't, you don't get over that <laughs> overnight. Uh, and it sits with you. And I do think I was traumatized by 9-11, particularly as an immigrant. Uh, I, I came here and, and thought of America as the place where that kind of thing doesn't happen, that the new world was not contaminated yet with the pathologies of the old. And they came in and they raped this country symbolically, uh, emotionally, psychically. And, and that for a country that's its mainland has never been attacked in that way before, uh, except the War of 1812, but nothing like that. No. And Pearl Harbor happened in Hawaii, which psychologically is a different feeling than the heart of New York City, not to, not to minimize that. But uh, I was distraught. I was furious. I was so wounded. I love this country so much. It made me, it, it just, I think I lost 
I lost my bearings. I'll be frank with you. I lost my bearings. I think a well, lot of us a, did. A lot of people lost their bearings. Uh, and a lot of people are still getting them back. And now I think we have a third part of that trio to deal with. Uh, the loss of Afghanistan, Andrew, I think is going to have an existential lasting crisis in America. I talked this morning with John Andrazik, who wrote The Blood on Our Hands, a uh, song that's being censored by Facebook, because the trauma of seeing an 8- and a 10-year-old beheaded on Monday, the ongoing rollout of what will happen from condemning 38 million people to medievalism, and even worse, to barbarianism of the worst sort, isn't that going to impact the West? I mean, don't we put that on our back and carry that forward, every atrocity going forward? Well, yes, except no. <laughs> uh, the, it is, it is the, the Taliban were there before us, they're there after us. There was no way, I believe you, that the United States could have continued another decade or two of counterinsurgency in that country when, in fact, the Taliban was making quite considerable gains and in which the government had yet to secure its core legitimacy with a lot of the people of that country. Uh, it was a quagmire of all quagmires. I hate to use that awful uh, cliche, but no. And now look, are there going to be people there that could threaten us? I think the existential threat is if, if terrorists came out of those places to hit us again, like 9-11. Um, I don't know. It's a risk. It's a risk everywhere. Every See, ungoverned. It, it's two part for me. One, we did not allow the exodus. And unlike most of the West, which allowed the Jews to flee Hitler, we closed up shops so quickly that we stranded there not merely 100 Americans and thousands of LPRs. You were an LPR for a long time, by the way, right? You are a green card holder. And yes. I can't I cannot believe I still can't absorb that we left thousands of LPRs in Afghanistan. Those are people to whom we owed an exit. And we left SIV-eligible people by the tens of thousands. That's the burden. If someone wants to be with the Taliban and they didn't get a chance to leave uh, and they change their mind later, I'm not going to worry about that. But we've put people, they're going to the whatever is the Taliban equivalent of Auschwitz. And we're going to have to deal with that. But secondly, it's going to be a matter of weeks before Zawahiri shows up with his, ha-ha, we won. Uh, I, it took 20 years, but Osama bin Laden had the strategic vision and I had the tactical common sense to wait it out because we know the West is weak. And they will come again, Andrew. I am convinced they will. Aren't sure. you? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just they, That requires intelligence I don't have. Um, but what I will say is this. What's remarkable is that what happened, you're not, you're describing it correctly. And I'm not, I don't want to in any way minimize the incompetence there. Now, it wasn't just Biden. It was the Congress, too. We should have, we should have got these SIVs processed much sooner. We should, have, we should have made it a priority. It wasn't as if we didn't know this was happening. We had a deadline. So I don't understand that, to be honest with you. And that's unforgivable, not rescuing our own, let alone others. Uh, but even after that, a big majority of the American people support getting out. Oh, yeah. There's a limit to how long you can keep such an invasion when the own, your own population really has said 20 years and we're no really much further forward than we were 15 ago. Uh, look, and, and so you have to, you know, Kissinger would tell you this too. You can't sustain that kind of intervention when you do not have that popular support. And I can't see any, I mean, both previous presidents had committed to getting us out. There's I agree. Certain, and there, uh, there is no doubt about it. It's just how we went. 
and the burden oh, of that. I get, I get that. Uh, let me ask right. you about W. W gave a speech in Shanksville this weekend. I know you were harsh on his policy. I believe that's a long game in Iraq, and we're going to have to wait to think. I think the Abraham Accords are a result of the invasion, and I think it will be proven to have been a wise decision despite the obvious error on weapons of mass destruction of which I was a part. I believed it, too. So did you. So did Bill Crystal. So did everybody. We all bought it. But W as a gracious man, W as a good man, I think he's the best man to have been president in my lifetime, though Reagan accomplished better things. What do you think of my estimate of him being a good man? I, I'm not going to disagree, I, and I don't know him, and, and I don't know him personally, and I think you can make misjudgments about people, especially their, their core character, unless you really know them well. It's easy to distort it. Um, he certainly appears to me to be a gracious man, and certainly the speech he gave, which I did not interpret as entirely an attack upon the insurrectionists, generally right. sick. I think it was also people setting fire to cities around the country. Antifa. Uh, the opposite. Yeah. It's, it, he, he did not. That was, that was sort of interesting. Some people took it and some other people didn't. Uh, uh, I, but I do think there were ways in which he uh, sanctioned, uh, whether it was out of not wanting to know or whether it was brushing aside uh, moral qualms. But you do not... You do not subject human beings to the treatment that he subjected human beings in our custody uh, without having at least severe, severe moral qualms. And I have never seen him express that uh, or indicate accountability for that or responsibility for it. And I'm sorry, but that for me matters. And I, you and I will disagree on, on the torture memo forever. So let's. Let's not go there. But let, let me instead make a radical turn in your writing to an essay on Princess Diana. And I do that because, A, I want to make sure people understand how broad out on the limb is in terms of the writing. But you wrote this for The Times of London. And uh, you, you made in there, there's nobody except perhaps Ronald Reagan whose death could have prompted such a spontaneous and shocking expression of American grief. That's correct. I think there might be a Michael Jackson's death got that for a variety of reasons. Tom Hanks might generate it. The Obamas would if it was sudden and unexpected. But the question is why? Why did that happen, Andrew? Well, again, she had done nothing but get married, essentially. Yes. Uh, that was her sole achievement. Uh, Americans, you know, they miss, I think they deeply miss hierarchy and they love royalty in some ways as, in, a, in, a, in a fairy tale way. And what Diana presented was the British monarchy, but repackaged as Hollywood. An incredibly powerful combination in America, as well as, of course, just physical beauty and clear charm, enormous charm uh, and vulnerability, all that stuff. We just That's bonded it. with her. She was a victim. Uh, Wasn't she a victim? Well, she didn't feel like that when she came to Washington. It was, <laughs> I remember, Dancing I went to with that Travolta. Uh, she was waltzing with John Travolta. It didn't seem a victim at all. Uh, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm a little queasy about some of the victimization of her. She, she, the Crown, I thought, did a good job. She, she wasn't a fool. She knew what she was doing. Um, but when but yeah, she died, no, I think America's love of monarchy, which is weird. It's almost if you want to make up in the pop culture what you lost in your constitution. 
Oh, you know what? That I love the monarchy. I love British history. In fact, I love your essay on um, mad, maddening America because of the way you hit the left wing in Great Britain as as crazy and in a way that I kind of understood but didn't really grasp how bad it was in the 50s and the 60s there. And that we are. I, I like that. It's a great counter. But but what Diana, I think, represented when she died out in Paris was running away from a failed attempt to penetrate that royalty and that 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 kind of graciousness combined with victimhood of, or uh, as it, we understand it as Americans through pop culture will elicit. What do you think about my analogy? If Oprah goes over or the Obamas or Tom Hanks will have the same sort of thing because they're wonderful people as understood by the people at large. She was a young woman killed. Oops, we, we've got a freeze on the Skype. There we go, Andrew, you're back. Did you get that? Was I no, you, you but start over. You started to say she was a young woman. She was, she was a young woman, a slight, in a car crash where she was bloodily killed, probably in some agony. Uh, that's, a, that's a sacrificial lamb. That's what, that's, that's what it feels like. Whereas other people's deaths... I don't know. It depends on the context of them. But yes. Uh, but I think that kind of violent death, young, is always going to have that kind of impact. And of course, the other thing, just to refer back to the AIDS crisis, is that, is that it was the youth of these people who were dying that was so dreadful. I mean, they were all in their 20s and 30s. This was, this was, this was not COVID. No, it was, it, was, it was awful. And people who are not old enough do not know what those years were like. There wasn't a church of which I was a part that wasn't running relief for AIDS in some way, running meals to people who were suffering. Philadelphia came out, kind of made it popular culture, but everyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear understood the suffering. Let me go to page 302 and out on a limb. My, maybe my favorite paragraph in the book, Andrew, is about the American Constitution, about you staying and loving in America. I've learned over the years that the constitutional system that seems divine to present, cha prevent change has more wisdom in it than some more centralized parliamentary system, and because the very choice decentralized and often irrational mess of American state and federal politics also allows for real innovation and debate in ways that simply do not occur as vibrantly elsewhere. So there you and I come together. I'm a constitutionalist. I'm from the party of McConnell. I was willing to vote and celebrate Donald Trump because of his three genius appointments to the Supreme Court, making it probably the most intellectually powerful it has been in my lifetime. The American Constitution is a work of genius, Andrew. Do you 100% agree with me on that? Well, yes. I mean, it's a, it's a miracle, like the works of Shakespeare in some ways, uh, to have sprung that way. Of course, it, when you look at the history, it's, it's, it, doesn't, it was a grinding mess, and it was a lot of politics and a lot of men. But for a country to have been blessed with that group of men at that time is, is really quite remarkable. And a self-correcting feature so that Korematsu can be overruled 50 years later and Brown v. Board can take away 70 years of segregation. You said earlier you wish that same-sex marriage hadn't been quite so court-driven. I believe it was going to happen via legislative means, and so I disagreed with Anthony Kennedy jumping the gun. It would have been better for everyone had it been legislated. But it still got us to where there is no, unlike abortion, about which there continues to be controversy, and I be, believe Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey will be overturned this year because it cannot, what John Roberts said in his concurrence in Citizens United is if a court case doesn't settle a dispute, the court shouldn't have tried. Anthony Kennedy's decision did settle the dispute. 
there is no debate anymore. So he was a little bit ahead of the culture, but he wasn't spitting into the wind like abortion case law is. I said I wanted to close with Thatcher, and I want to go there because she is the great unsung hero. I didn't know until I read Thatcher Liberator that you were a political nerd as a teenager and a Thatcherite when I was a Reaganite. Uh, when did that happen? I mean, when did you start carrying around Maggie for prime minister buttons? Oh, the mid-70s. And, and, uh, uh, and at the time, I was in a high school, and I sat next to Keir Starmer. He was my no classmate. Absolutely. We would get on the same public bus every morning for five years, and we would fight. All we did was fight. We were famous at our high school for just having this constant fight with each other. Uh, and he was a freaky lefty, and I was a total Thatcherite. I even wore a Reagan 80 button in an English high school. Uh, that, that was countercultural, to say the least. But, um, yeah, no, I was uh, – she – for me, I, I was growing up with my kind of personality in a drab, dreary, level-down socialist state. It was terrible. And you could see beneath this grim grime – there had been a Britain that was glorious, that had done amazing things in the world. And that, that she had the vision to say, I am going to change this trajectory. I am going to rest. I'm going to turn this country around. And the energy and dynamism that it took, and it was just her. I mean, there were people around her, but the, the force of nature was her all the way through as a woman also. I mean, one of the things I try and say in this book, it is outrageous that she is not the most revered feminist icon uh, in the West in so many ways. This is 100 percent. I, I want to quote page 341. Indira Gandhi and Golda Meir preceded her, but Thatcher's three election victories, the longest prime ministership since the 1820s, her alliance with the United States in defeating the Soviet Union, her liberation of the British economy, place her above their achievements. What, in, what inspires me still, you write, is the thought of a young woman in a chemistry lab at Oxford daring to believe that she could be one day prime minister, and not just any prime minister, but the defining public figure in British post-war political history. Wow, what a paragraph. It's true. Was she done justice in The Crown or in the movie? Not fully, um, although, no. Yeah, the movie was really uh, backed. Uh, it was written by people who didn't really care. The Crown was a lot better, partly because it had that fantastic Balmoral <laughs> episode where the class differences uh, yes. are so beautifully uh, put out. But again, you, you, people maybe in America fail to understand. That's why ordinary middle class people in England loved her. No one ever, no one in the American press would ever explain that. But she wasn't the aristocracy. She wasn't. And she wasn't also uh, a kind of a dr droning leftist. She was she had pluck and you could see it. And that draws people to you, you know, a little bit of courage, a little bit of energy. Um, I mean, she was, again, a force of a force of nature. I, I don't people like that come around. We were lucky to have her, I think, at the time. Um, you know, we were lucky to have Churchill and Thatcher in, in the 20th century. Without we, need a, we need a Reagan right now in America. Let me close, Andrew, because we're running long on your time. I want people to go out and get out on a limb. I can't do justice to it. But I want to ask you about Michael Oakeshott. Now, I often get in trouble with Brits and former Brits when I bring up Oxford, Cambridge. Neil Ferguson 
No, Andrew, uh, Roberts got mad at me when I suggested Oxford was prettier than Cambridge. I mean, he almost took my head off on the air. So I want to be careful. You're a graduate of Oxford, but you wrote your Ph.D. on Oakshot. Wasn't he at Cambridge? We, 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 uh, at the beginning, yes. <laughs> I See, I never get that. Myself. But because uh, he went to the LSE and he was the head of uh, political science there for many years, and that's where he earned his reputation. But yeah, don't, 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 don't bring that up. You well, don't I, bring. I, I just wanted to ask you about him. He's one of the great intellects of the last century. What was he like? A remarkably unassuming, quiet, gentle, uh, funny, curious. Utterly indifferent to the world in the way that he care, did not care about status. He did not care about uh, what people thought of him. He didn't care about celebrity or fame. He wrote and was really marginalized in his own time. My dissertation was only the second ever written on him. Wow. Uh, which was in 1990. Uh, he was basically silenced. No, I mean, he did write, but basically the, the political and the intellectual and the academic world treated him as a weird anomaly. What is this person, this conservative person? They misunderstood everything about him. He's so much more interesting than simply calling him a conservative. He's many, many other things as well. For me, uh, I met him once and we had a chat around his fire. If you imagine you meet your intellectual idol and you're allowed to sit in front of a fire and talk to him. And I asked him because my view was in the dissertation was that he had concealed the Christianity within his work wow. that that I thought was there and which has subsequently since they since he died and they found in notebooks a huge amount of material on Christianity, which he never published. Uh, and so we talked about life and death and God. I remember we talked about I asked him. What essay would you like to have written that you haven't written? And he said, well, I was thinking about writing about salvation. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, it's the, the idea of salvation that has nothing whatsoever to do with the future. Uh, well, that's the kind of thing that makes you bangs around in your head for a while. Yes. Uh, very T.S. Eliot in some ways, also very Eastern-oriented in some ways. He was a bit of a Taoist. Uh, but he thought for himself, when I wrote my dissertation, I couldn't find really anyone else I could put him in the context of. An individual, a total individual mind, uh, an individual spirit too, mischievous, querulous, cheerful, served his country very bravely, never mentioned it, uh, and uh, and that's the that's the miracle of the West, isn't it? That we are the sole civilization to have really made the emergence of the individual character its signature. Uh, not not the group power, not, but but the individual character who can exist outside of frames, outside of 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 castes, outside of class, outside of race, who's just him or herself, and we value that. And that's that's a function of the West. It really is. Uh, and he represented that to me and his philosophy represented that to me. A big influence, influenced hugely by Montaigne, by the way, Hugh, uh, a, a big Montaigne fan. Well, you say uh, Montaigne as opposed to Montaigne. Gibbon made me, Harvey made me say Montaigne, but I can't speak French. So I gave up to them. Uh, I went with that. I, I, I can't improve on that last answer, Andrew. I have lots more questions, but congratulations on Out on a Limb.
I hope you keep coming back. This was a lot more fun than the first round. It was. I apologize for that. Hugh. No, that was my. That was on me. Well, I felt I felt attack under attack when I at the very beginning, and that felt bad. Um, yeah. But uh, but nonetheless, thank you uh, for that, thank- and I hope I do, and and I'm so grateful. I think. I hope the book has a lot of various and interesting things for people and they enjoy it. And it's, it's a pick and choose book. You don't have to read it all the way through, but it, it's fun. And it's a history. It's the history of the last 30 years. It's, it's an intellectual journey. And it's, it's really quite a, it's all beyond every bookshelf. Like the essays are on my uh, bedside stand. I don't think Out on a Limb will be there, but it'll be on the bookshelf forever. Congratulations, Andrew Sullivan. I think Out on a Limb will be a bestseller. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Hugh. I appreciate it. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.